Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Igloo, a new sponsor. An intranet you'll actually like, built with easy-to-use apps like file sharing, blogs, calendars, task management, and lots more. Visit igloosoftware, or one word, .com slash pragmatic to get started today. It's free to use for up to 10 people. This episode is also sponsored by lynda.com. lynda.com is the easy and affordable way to learn where you can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, and lots more. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to get a free seven-day trial. If you've ever wanted to learn something new, what are you waiting for? We'll talk more about them during the show. I'm your host, John Chidji, and I'm joined once again today by my co-host, Vic Hudson. How's it going, Vic? It is good, John. How's it going for you? It is going very well. So, just quickly, it's possible to see a list of topics I'll be covering on the show in coming weeks at techdistortion.com slash topics. And I've also started to release an equivalent to the After Dark at Arf, um, it's like slash B-side slash, you know, doesn't fit into the show thing. And I'm calling it Addenda. It's at techdistortion.com slash podcasts slash addenda. Go check it out. Well, tonight, sorry, I should say this episode because it may not be nighttime when you're actually listening to this episode. So I apologize for the presumption that it's going to be nighttime when you're listening to it. It may not be nighttime when you're recording it. Indeed, if you're on (laughs) your part of the little ball that we live on. So, yes. Actually, it's not such a little ball. Anyway, this particular topic was uh, suggested by uh, Kaya. I know I've pronounced his name before and I've got it right, so the pressure is on me to remember how I pronounced it. Um, Latinen. Kaya Latinen. Suggested on the 9th of October. So, this is going back uh, a few weeks now. And it was the highest voted topic in the list. So I'll read out the whole topic suggestion and we're going to and I'll tell you what we're going to cover and what we're not. Okay, so the full to- the full topic is efficiency of various energy production methodologies such as nuclear, gas, coal, solar, wind, etc., finding ways to reduce energy usage and debating the path to cleaner energy. So the problem with this topic and I mean I say the problem with this topic, I don't mean that in a detrimental way, but just the fact is that I've already talked about some of this stuff previously on episode two, the battery problem. And the thing about the battery problem is that it's it's kind of the fan favorite episode of Pragmatic, at least so far anyway. I mean, here we are at episode 46. It's the fan favorite insofar as it's had the most feedback of any episode that I've made. More than Coffee, although Coffee's had the most downloads. Uh, as I say, the battery problems had more feedback and more requests um, for more information. So, and that's reflected by the fact that it's already had four follow-up episodes. So, I did stop and think when I got this topic suggestion whether or not I would simply do part E to the follow-up for the battery problem. But I decided not to. I think we'll do this as a standalone episode. Got to draw a line at some point. So, 
um, Caius uh, sort of, when he made the suggestion, I want to break this into two pieces. And f- I guess I'm going to start by recommending if you haven't listened to episode two, go back and listen to it uh, and all of the follow-up episodes. Uh, there is a lot in them. So, what I want to do is I want to focus specifically on efficiency. So, we'll talk specifically about efficiency of different generation technologies, as in energy generation. Although, technically, I guess um, it's electricity generation and it's energy conversion. So, energy conversion being different from, you know, because you can't create energy. So, the other piece I'm going to look into is I'm going to look into the environmentally friendly approaches that you can take the you know again like the namesake of the show the pragmatic approaches you can take to improve energy efficiency in your house so those are the two paths i want to explore and mainly because a lot of the other stuff in that in that topic has already been covered what do you think sounds good the other thing I'm going to do also in the next uh, 10 or so is I'll be doing a few more topics uh, like it that is sort of along those lines, but going into a lot more detail. But keep an eye on the site. You'll you'll see what I mean as things come up. There's an excellent resource for information on this subject. It's called Electrope- Electropedia. There's a link in the show notes. Highly recommend checking it out. It has a absolute ton of information about energy efficiency, different technologies. It really is uh, a great resource. Okay, so let's talk about conversion of energy, not cost effectiveness. So this has got to be clear up front here. I don't want to talk about the cost effectiveness of it. I don't want to talk about reliability of supply. I don't want to talk about maintenance costs. We're just going to focus on efficiency. Now, the problem is... The efficiency of the conversion. Exactly. The problem is, if you were to look at the efficiency of the conversion of all the different technologies, you would see hydroelectricity at the top of the list. And you would see PV cells, you know, photovoltaic cells, solar cells, you'd see them almost at the bottom. And you might start thinking, well, if we just installed hydro everywhere and throw everything else away, we'd be fine, right? Obviously, that's not the whole story. Hydro plants are enormous. You have to drown massive areas of the countryside to build efficient, decent-sized hydroelectric plants. And the fact that you can put a solar panel on your roof pretty much anywhere you like in the world uh, without impacting anything, well, you know, obviously that's a big difference, a big deal. You can't ignore that kind of flexibility. Oh, yeah, and it's a heck of a lot cheaper. So it's not the whole story. Yeah. But it's still definitely worth looking at the different efficiencies and the different trade-offs. So, I think it is interesting. Yes, I think it is worth diving into. I mean, after all, we've picked it as topic. But ultimately, the pragmatic solution to our energy problems is not just about efficiency. It has to be balanced with cost, feasibility, environmental impacts, all that stuff. All right, enough about that. So, I want to break it down into the three uh, specific values that are often quoted. The first and often quoted one is the theoretical limit. So, the theoretical efficiency limit. Uh, Then I want to talk about uh, the present uh, laboratory best or the lab best. So, the best that they can do in a controlled environment. And then finally, where we are currently with the mass-produced efficiencies of these different technologies. In other words, right now, I can mass-produce 100 generators. They are the best one. You're looking at a mass-produced value of about this. 
So that's the realistic right now with current technology, this is what we can create. So when I speak theoretical, I guess I'm, I'm talking about your materials and technologies that don't necessarily currently exist. We assume someday that they could exist, but and then maybe we'd be able to reach that theoretical limit. But, you know, theoretical limit means theoretical, as in right now, not possible. So let's be clear about that up front. And we, so, far, so far as laboratory goes, that ignores our physical capability to actually manufacture these things en masse, whether that's solar cells, whether it's fuel cells, whether or not it's a hydro plant. You know, there are there are limitations to how big we can make machines, like, like uh, internal combustion engines, which we'll, we'll get to, is there's a physical limitation that you start reaching when you try and mass produce these things. Not everything scales. And a good example of this is nuclear fission. You know, we, 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 can, we know that E equals MC squared. We know you smash together deuterium and tritium and you, you will get uh, helium and you'll get a, a heck of a lot of energy. Okay, we know that. We can do that in the laboratory environment for a short period of time. Have we got any nuclear fission power stations that actually work in the world yet? Uh, and the answer is no. I didn't think so. No, I mean, they have them, but they don't produce more energy than they consume in order to start the reaction. Yeah. So they do exist. So it's kind of a wash. Yeah, exactly. They're theoretical reactors. No, well, hang on. Well, that's, that's really the wrong word. They're experimental reactors. So they do exist, but they don't actually generate a positive, a net surplus of energy at least not consistently. So they can for a short period of time, then they got shut down. So really not that useful. <laughs> okay. So what is efficiency? What do you reckon, Vic? What is it? Uh, I think it's a, a way to measure the, the return versus investment of something. Yep, exactly. Uh, and to put it in just using the word energy, it's energy out divided by energy in. So energy can be in lots of different forms. Anything that burns, you know, typically has to do with chemical energy. The reaction of a compound, whatever it might be, with oxygen releasing heat as a byproduct, you know, and we use the heat usually to turn water into steam and then we use the steam to drive a bunch of fan blades in a turbine and that in turn turns a generator. So, for example, with, with coal, you know, we burn it in a boiler. So, we crush up the coal into a fine dust, burn it, and that, you know, in a boiler, that heats up water going through pipes in a boiler, that makes steam. Then we use the steam to drive the turbine. Solar thermal, all that infrared heat energy from the sunlight is concentrated into molten salt, and that makes steam. And then that steam drives the turbine. Now, even with nuclear energy, you know, you know equals MC squared and all that, we uh, we split we split some uranium, some plutonium. It uh, breaks apart, generates a whole bunch of heat. Hopefully, we leave enough control rods in there, <laughs> so it doesn't do anything crazy. And that heat generates steam, and steam drives turbine. Geothermal, same kind of thing. Drill a hole in the ground down to a molten pocket. What do you do? Pump water down there. Whoa, we're making steam. Steam's driving a turbine. Seeing a common theme here. Many people have said that the steam engine is the largest generator of electricity in the world because technically it really is because all the technologies we hang off the end of them whether or not it's nuclear fu fission nuclear fusion <laughs> not yet fusion nuclear fission 
uh, whether or not it's coal-fired, whether or not it's gas-fired, all of these things, they all essentially generate steam to drive a steam turbine, pretty much. Yeah. However, there are, of course, different ways of driving the generator. And you can actually directly mechanically drive the generator with, for example, an internal combustion engine. So we're taking chemical energy, we're physically forcing uh, that to turn around. Well, in an internal combustion engine that's reciprocating, I guess if it's a rotary engine, then you know it generates rotary action. But the point is that it physically spins a shaft and there's no steam involved then hydroelectricity falls into the same category. We have a, a, a massive propeller or set of propellers. You know, the water pressure forces them to turn. That directly drives the generator. So, the, the, I'll call them, you know, direct mechanically driven. But, you know, once your energy is sort of rotational, then you get all the losses that come along with that. But it's pretty consistent across all the different technologies. Once you reach that shaft, all the efficiencies between 95 to 99%. It's pretty high. Pretty high efficiency once you reach that point. Yeah. So the only losses you really get are resistive losses in the windings, which is kind of obvious, and and also obvious is the friction because you know this thing turns around, you got gravity acting on it, you know therefore yeah. it's going to experience friction in the bearings and so on and so forth. So uh, and that resist resists bearings that need maintained. Yeah, exactly. Moving parts, right? So that's all of the. That, those are the energy, um, different kinds of energy conversion generation technologies we're going to touch on, except for two more specials. And these are ones that don't actually turn a single thing. So they're special. Solar, uh, when I say solar, I mean photovoltaic solar and fuel cells. And they're unique insofar as they convert either photonic energy or electrochemical energy directly into electrical energy without turning anything mechanical. And that has all sorts of other benefits, not just from you know the, the efficiency point of view, because you may say, okay, well, they don't have that, you know, they don't have to worry about the 95 to 99% efficiency that you're, that you're losing in spinning up a generator to generate electricity through magnetic fields, rotating magnetic fields and all that stuff. No, 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 you don't have to worry about that, so it's perfect. But that's actually not true because you still have to go through because uh, those technologies will generate direct current. So, so long as you've got devices that rely on AC or you've got transmission lines with transformers that require AC, you have to go through a DC to AC converter. You lose some in the conversion. Correct. So it's not perfect either. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut that out and we're going to ignore that. We're going to say that, you know, I'm only interested in the conversion efficiencies up to the point where I'm spinning my shaft. At that point in time, it's a level playing field. I mean, it's not exactly, but it's close enough because the efficiencies you're going to get out of your AC to DC, AC to AC, DC to DC, DC to AC, whatever converter combination you like, you are still going to get somewhere between 95 and 99% efficiency out of that converter, just as you're going to get around about that kind of conversion efficiency out of your actual electrical generator. Fair enough? few more things we're going to ignore. Mm-hmm. We're going to ignore transmission losses. We're going to ignore insulation requirements. And mainly because I don't think they're relevant to the discussion. And before we get stuck into the very first one, I just need to quickly touch on the basis of this. I've kind of mentioned it, but the law of conservation of energy states that the total energy in an isolated system cannot change. 
it can only be converted between different forms of energy. So, there are no... What do they call them? Ain't no perpetual motion machine in this house. Doesn't exist. So, anyone that thinks you can make a perpetual motion <laughs> machine, just forget it. Alrighty. Let's start with the internal combustion engine, shall we? What do you reckon? Sure. All right. So, internal combustion engines. I just want to break that into two pieces. Gasoline and diesel. And gasoline is typically modeled on something they call the Otto cycle. But in an ideal scenario, you can simplify uh-huh. that to the Carnot cycle. There's a bunch of formulas. There are links in the show notes. If you're interested in what all that stuff means, go right ahead. But to carry on with that, if you use ideal gases and you simplify it to a Carnot cycle, you get about 46% efficiency. And that's your theoretical limit. However, engine components have mass. Movements causes friction, mm-hmm. inertia, etc. because it's reciprocating yep. in the case of reciprocating piston engines. So, um, it's, I said that that's the theoretical limit. That's using ideal materials. A real world theoretical limit for a gasoline engine is around about 37% as a result of all of the real-world yeah. implications. And this is a very well-understood problem because internal combustion engines have been around for 120 years or longer. It's been a while. Although that lost energy, you think to yourself, okay, I'm burning my gasoline, where's it going? Well, it's going, up in, it's going out as heat because you don't want the engine to self-destruct and melt. Therefore, what do you do? You've got to extract the heat. How do you do that? You know, you pump cooling water through the engine, and, well, in the case, it's not air-cooled, but then most air-cooled engines yep. tend to break down. It's well, certainly in warmer climates like I live in. Anyway, so, so much for your V-dubs in the 60s and the Beatles and, and so on. They just keep they just keep breaking in our climate. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, you got, you, all that energy is lost as heat. And, of course, uh, some of that heat goes out in hot gas in the exhaust. So... Heat, there's heat, there's obviously vibration because, you know, these, these engines will vibrate a lot. They're on shock mounts to absorb the vibration, but that vibration is vibrational energy. That's lost energy. And, of course, noise. Vibration drives, you know, sound waves, and those sound waves, are, that energy is also transmitted that way. So, you lose energy in all those different ways. Yeah. Now, there's a great link on the physics stack exchange that I've put in the show notes that goes into a fair bit of detail about the maths behind internal combustion engine efficiency for gasoline. Now, diesel cycle is different because of the way in which diesel diesel is you know combusted without spark plug and high compression ratios and blah, blah, blah. It can achieve a higher efficiency, about 56%. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons with high compression diesel. And that's one of the reasons it's becoming so popular. More than half of the cars sold in Europe are now diesel. You know, it's becoming very popular. So, yeah. the largest and most efficient for its size engine, internal combustion engine in the world, is a diesel engine. It gets about 50% efficiency and it's a marine engine. When I say marine engine, I mean it's meant for a boat. So, the largest diesel generator in the world is 80 megawatts. Yeah. 
And at that point, they tend to stop. Now, you may have recall, if you've listened to episode two, um, then you'll recall that I worked at the Stanmore Power Station. Just to recap, uh, it's a coal-fired power station with four, um, four, four generator units, four turbo generator units. And each one is 350 megawatts. So, it's 1.44 gigawatts. So, it's a reasonable size plant. And um, certainly run a couple of toothbrushes. 80 megawatts is nothing compared to that. You know, 80 megawatts is a fraction of a generator. All right. You know, one of the, one of the turbo genera- turbine generators at Stanwell. Now, this, I, this re- the reason for that is because you, as you physically make the internal combustion engine bigger and bigger, a lot of the physics, it doesn't scale because the pistons simply get too big and they have too much inertia and they have too much loss, it becomes inefficient. So, internal combustion engines, the whole idea of using them for power generation on a massive scale falls apart. They're great for backup generators. They're great for isolated grids that are not huge, like, well, a boat or a remote rural town. But that's it. Now, before we start, we're going to talk about hydroelectric power next. But before we do that, I'd like to talk about our first sponsor for the show, and that's Igloo Software, new sponsor. In engineering, I've worked in a lot of companies that use a mismatched collection of different tools to provide the basic functionality that you need to get your job done. Things like file sharing, wikis, announcement pages, department landing pages, they're disconnected, disorganized, and for whatever reason, they only ever seem to work on Internet Explorer 7 and on your company-provided desktop. Good luck using it anywhere else. Now, Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Yeah. They bring the ease of use from consumer software into your corporate environment by using familiar apps like shared calendars, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, and lots more. Everything can be social with comments, like buttons. Anyone can add content, well, based on their permissions, which you can easily set, with drag-and-drop widgets, add a WYSIWYG, and, of course, that stands for what you see is what you get, uh, with a WYSIWYG editor. So you can also customize everything inside your igloo globally across a team. You can define a team and and your team can have its own uh, customized appearances and components or an individual page if you like. Now, if you want more than that, they have an in-house team of web developers and graphic designers that will help you to customize the platform completely to fit your brand, your business and your requirements. Now, the free trial experience that they provide it comes preloaded with three templates. There's an app-based intranet, a corporate intranet, and a customer community. And these all have elements of what's possible with Igloo. And once you're in there, it's surprisingly easy to start reorganizing it just the way you like it to fit your needs. Now, thanks to the built-in responsive design, it'll work on any device you could choose, like a laptop, tablet, phone, all the major browsers, Internet Explorer 8 and up, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and on iOS and Android's native browsers as well. They also have dedicated apps for iOS, Android, and BlackBerry. To add a file, so I'll talk about a couple of the things that, that I've played with specifically. Uh, add a file to Igloo. It can be easily shared and seen by others within your Igloo. If someone wants to edit the file, you can reserve and download it, make your edits, then upload it when you're done. If you change your mind, you just release the lock. All done through the browser. There's a version control that's done automatically. You can add version change information each time. Beyond that, you can associate tasks with the document or remind, other, remind others that they need to review it or make comments. 
and lots more. It's so much nicer than SharePoint. Now, if you're not ready to abandon SharePoint yet, that's fine. With Igloo, you can use SharePoint to archive your documents, but you can collaborate within Igloo, and that way you leverage both. So that's for your users. But what if you're in charge of the IT side? Well, Igloo handles the security, hosting, and management all for you. Their data center partner is SSAE 16 certified. They offer SSL encryption, uh, end-to-end disaster recovery, single tenant and shared environments, integration with many authentication and sync systems, including SAML services and LDAP. Now, mid to late last year, that was uh, 2013, I was working for a small startup company called Project Facilitation. And based on my own experiences trialing Igloo myself privately, um, we, we used it for building our own intranet. It was really handy and saved us from having to develop and try and integrate the pieces that we needed ourselves. Adding and moving around the features we needed was really easy. And what you see is what you get made it so, so much easier just to tailor it the way we wanted without having to have any developer skills with a minimal learning curve. We, it had, we, we, we whipped it up very fast. Now, you may have heard people talking about Igloo in the past, but take it from me, I've used it it is worth your time to check it out. So, how can you check it out? It's easy. Just visit igloosoftware, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic, specifically that URL, and sign up for a trial. It's free for groups of up to 10 people. There's no credit card required, no obligation. Just sign up and have a play today. And I say have a play because it's so nice, it doesn't feel like work. Anyway, uh, I'd like to thank Igloo for sponsoring Pragmatic. Hydroelectric power. Everyone loves hydro. Something in the water. Do you like hydro power, Vic? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just don't go swimming at the the at the at the, uh, the dam wall, okay? The dam wall. You don't want to go fishing there either. No. As witnessed by Bart Simpson. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right, so for efficiency reasons and because of the design of the different kinds of propellers, which we'll actually talk about, um, you typically will drive the fan blades at a much lower speed than you would run a steam turbine at. So normally an electric motor would run at several thousand RPM, but a hydro generator, it's geared up from a very low physical RPM to a low running shaft speed. So, Singer's machine equation is, for all those people that don't, would love to know, is NS equals 120F on P, where NS is the synchronous speed of the machine, uh, F is the frequency, and P is the number of poles. And the scary thing is I didn't have to look that up, but never mind that. By increasing the number of poles, you can reduce the speed the generator needs to spin at to produce the same output frequency. All right, so I don't want to cover how you wind electrical motors because no one cares. Um, but if you if you email me if you care, and I'm happy to talk about it. But anyway, all right. So less than five megawatt size plants, they can achieve between 80 85 percent efficiency. Larger hydro plants will top out about 95 percent conversion efficiency, which is really good. But the energy conversion, yeah, is high. But in order to be economical, it needs to be at a larger scale, and that's where hydro falls apart. Now, I'm not including tidal or wave-powered options. I discussed that in part A follow-up to episode two. There's essentially two kinds of hydropower that I want to talk about. There's run of so-called run of river and, of course, the obvious one we've already talked about, which is the dam. So, run of river is designed essentially to be, either, to be partially immersed propellers. They usually use something called a Pelton turbine. Think of a wheel 
with a bunch of scoops around it. They're very, uh-huh. yeah, it's it's kind of like a modern equivalent of a water wheel. Gotcha. And it's common for shallow, fast-flowing rivers. And the idea is that uh, the plant will run at the speed that the river runs. Hence the name, gotcha. run of river. It's really not that imaginative, actually, come to think of it. Now, dams, on the other hand, and I guess some deeper and slower flowing rivers, they may use a like a Francis reaction or a propeller or Kaplan turbine. And there's links in the show notes if you want to know more about each of those individually and how they're different. But they all tend to rely on higher head pressures to turn them. And they turn... And they're using the dam to generate that pressure. Yeah, they use the water head pressure, which I'll talk about in a second. So they turn at much slower rotational rates than a Pelton does. Uh, but they produce much more torque and you can then gear that torque up to drive a generator. Even then, it still spins at a much slower shaft speed. Now, I mentioned head pressure. For those that don't know what head pressure is, head pressure is the pressure created by a volume of water acting at a given point in a closed system. So, imagine you've got a hose. Let's say it's 10 feet long. That's 3 meters long. And it's perfectly vertical. Yeah, okay, I know. I'm talking about hydraulics. I'm an electrical engineer, whatever. If I press my thumb over the bottom end of that hose, then I fill the hose to the top with water. There will be 10 feet or 3 meters of head pressure being applied to my thumb trying to seal off the bottom. Because the water isn't moving, that's referred to as a static head pressure. If the water begins to flow, it's affected by the diameter of the pipe, the tube. Uh, We start talking about Bernoulli equations, flow dynamics, and I drift off to sleep because I really don't care. But anyway, bottom line is, that's what head pressure is. So, you have a big dam, you've got 100 meters of head pressure behind it, which is why they like to have a big dam wall and a big dam wall. And <laughs> yeah, no one, no one ever makes that joke. Anyway, and the, the height of the top of the water down to the lowest part of the dam wall is usually where they will place uh, the actual uh, propeller that drives the generators. So, they'll be at the bottom... Sometimes I'll even run them down the side of a hill. So they'll they'll dam at the top of the hill and then they'll run a, a series of pipes right down to the bottom, uh, as close to the bottom as possible before they actually go through and start generating uh, you know, flow through the through the propellers. And the reason they do that is where they want to maximize their head pressure. Yeah. More pressure, more efficient. Obviously, that's a problem, you know, if you've got, you know, a, a, a large area of land that's mostly flat and is bounded by a bunch of mountain ranges, you, you plug up the air exits, that's well and good. But is that enough to make a hydroelectric power station? And the answer is usually no, you need the height, you need the head pressure. So, it's not just as easy as building a dam. Anyway. So, uh, that's hydro. Hydro sounds awesome until you have to, you know, flood everything. Anyway, again, talked about a lot more about the other aspects of hydro in episode two. Go have a listen to that if you want to know a little bit more about the other consequences of hydro. I don't want to cover that again. Okay, so let's talk about steam engines and turbines. So, steam engines have two basic types. There's an imp- the impulse type and the reaction type. Now... Mm-hmm. there's uh, a link in the show notes to a site that has a very good discussion about steam engines and steam turbines. I am going to read from that. I've, I've, I've copied what they've got for the next two bits about the, the way that they work, but I've tweaked the wording slightly. Uh, it just said it better than I thought 
I didn't see the reason to reinvent these two things. So this is uh, uh, visualize this as best you can based on the words because I have no images to show you. Got it. The steam jets are directed. Sorry, this is a sorry. This is a an impulse turbine. The steam jets are directed at the turbine's bucket-shaped rotor blades, where the pressure exerted by the jets causes the rotor to rotate and the velocity of the steam to reduce as it imparts its kinetic energy to those blades. The blades in turn change the direction of flow of the steam. However, its pressure remains constant as it passes through the rotor blades, since the cross-section of the chamber between the blades is, consist is constant. Impulse turbines are therefore also referred to as constant pressure turbines. The next series of fixed blades reverses the direction, also also known as, sorry, reverses the direction of the steam before it passes to the second row of moving blades, and so on. So that's an impulse turbine. A reaction turbine is when the rotor blades of the reaction turbine are shaped more like aerofoils, and they're arranged such that the cross section of the chambers formed between the fixed blades diminishes from the inlet side towards the exhaust side of the blades. The chambers between the rotor blades essentially form nozzles so that as the steam progresses through the chambers, its velocity increases while at the same time the pressure decreases, just as in the nozzles formed by fixed blades would do. Thus, pressure decreases in both the fixed and the moving blades. As the steam emerges in a jet from between the rotor blades, it creates a reactive force on the blades, which in turn creates a turning moment on the turbine rotor. So you can think of that as essentially it reacts to varying levels of pressure from the steam being forced over the blades as an aerofoil, like an aircraft wing. So you'll get a high pressure on one side, lower pressure on the other side of it, and though those reactions will cause it to move, which is uh, the kind of turbines that they use at uh, Stanor Power Station, for example. Okay, hopefully people are still with me there. Anyway, eventually the steam will reach such a low pressure when it's done that it can no longer perform any work. So it still has heat and it's not a liquid, it's still steam. Problem is then you need to condense it back into water because you can't pump steam and then you've got to pump that water back into the boiler or whatever heating device you're using to go for another cycle. Now, the condensing of the steam also has the effect of creating a, not a perfect, but a partial vacuum. And that partial vacuum creates a low pressure zone, which draws steam through the turbine, which of course, therefore further drives the rotation of the turbine by creating an extra low pressure zone at the end. Got it. Okay. Now that particular cycle, they call that a Rankine cycle. And it's been around for quite a while. The biggest problem with the Rankine cycle, and frankly, you know, a lot of these steam engines, is that the condensing function represents a significant loss of energy. So that's a problem. So steam engines, the problem that I've got is looking for figures on efficiencies of steam engines, it's difficult to get accurate figures because I looked and I looked and I looked to get the exact figures and every time I found exact figures, I found contradicting figures. 
think there would be a lot of local variables to enter into that equation anywhere you tried it. Yeah, there are a lot of variables. And it's that's a big simplification for you to simply say, yeah, oh, it's about 30%, 50%. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that's up to a certain flow rate, a certain amount of pressure, you know, the design of the blades and everything. And it's like, oh, well, okay. And so I've gone through this list. What's the efficiency? Well, it varies from 30% to 60%. That's a horrible answer, but I'm sorry, that's all I could come up with because yeah. there's so much variability with steam engines. It's so hard to be sure. And it's so down to the manufacturing details and the specific conditions. The problem also you got to consider is that that's just the efficiency of the actual steam turbine part of it. And I read some places that say, oh yeah, it's 95% efficient. And it's like, well, actually, no, it's not because you're not including the condenser in your efficiency. You know, so if a true Rankine cycle would never achieve that. The law of thermodynamics is going to stop you anyway. So, you know, dear me. So steam, when you consider steam plus the condensing plus, you know, the boiling, all of that stuff like in a coal-fired power station, it's horrendously inefficient. End-to-end inefficiencies is somewhere between 30 to 40% overall. It's really terrible. But because it's so cheap, people don't care, except for the fact, of course, you're pumping yeah. tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, there is that. Yeah, bad. Naughty. All right. So I'm done talking about steam, reciprocating engines. Um, I've already talked about nuclear power and how that works previously, well, briefly, and there's really not much else to say about it. Um, You're out of steam? <laughs> I'm out of steam about steam. Good one. Oh, my God. Couldn't resist. Uh, no, Sorry. Hey, that's fine. So let's talk about solar. Because I love solar. I think solar is magical and awesome. Now, I did cover this in detail in episode two, but there's some more I want to say about it. Essentially, though, the way solar works is it's it, essentially it's it's doped silicon. And the doped silicon type of uh, photovoltaic cell will have a peak conversion efficiency uh, at a specific wavelength, but depending on how it's been doped with different chemicals. Now, by carefully manufacturing transparent, partly transparent layers and using different prisms and so on between layers, it's possible to actually have multiple layers and you can build up a wafer that has different doped layers of silicon. So instead of having a single wavelength cell, you can stack multiple layers to get two and even three different uh, junctions. So uh, each layer will convert a different wavelength. So sunlight that we get is actually consists multiple wavelengths of light. They all blend together to give us white light that our eyes... Uh, see, let me look at the sun. Well, hopefully you don't look directly at the sun. It's generally considered to be bad. It is bad for your retina. But anyway, um, point is that all those different wavelengths, you can then push your efficiency. So when you are actually looking at the Shockley-Quiesler limit, that in 1961, they figured this out. They said, look, your maximum conversion you're going to get from a PN junction is 33%. That's for a single junction. But that all assumes a single layer and a single predominant wavelength. Now, mm -hmm. you start stacking these things, obviously, you can absorb more energy. You can capture more of the energy, I should say, rather than just being wasted. Now, that then leads to a theoretical limit of between 85 and 90%. But that, importantly, that assumes light concentration. And by light concentration, I'm referring to uh, solar concentrators. 
you know, mm-hmm. like parabolic dishes, mirrors, refractors, whatever, you're taking a large amount of sunlight falling over a larger area, concentrating it down onto a solar cell in a much smaller area. In other words, you're cheating. Man, that's okay, I guess. But if you're going to put that on your roof, realistically, that's going to double, triple, quadruple the surface area on your roof you're required to actually have light concentration to go down to those solar cells. And they may well reach a point where they can, they've got a home solar concentrator kit that they figure out some way of doing that nicely and neatly that's maintenance-free and doesn't require cleaning. And ugh. Until then, let's just run with the non-light concentrated maximum theoretical efficiency of 68% conversion. So that's assuming you can capture all three, like three layers, which is roughly where your efficiency mm-hmm. trade-off drops off. Well, actually, I think 68% is uh, assuming an infinite number, but you get very close to 68% with just three, theoretically. So anyway, let's compare and contrast that theoretical limit with the best laboratory result at the moment. And there's a link in the show notes that has a nice thing, nice chart that shows you all the different lab results uh, by EPEL. And there was a part link to it in my presentation that I did when I was working at a pre- previous company where I was giving a, uh, a tech talk uh, regarding solar, solar electric design. And that was linked in episode two. So go and have a look at that if you really want. It's also linked in the show notes to this one. And it shows you all the different laboratory results up until a few years ago. Best results so far at that point in time of that chart being generated was 41.6%. And that was for a trijunction two terminal monolithic. 41.6. So that's not too far away from 68%, I guess. It's more than halfway. That's something. Anyway, now we bring you back down to earth. How much is the efficiency of a mass-produced current market solar cell? What's your best guess, Vic? Uh, last I heard, I don't think they're very good. Like maybe 10 or 15%, something like that. Boom. Spot on. 15%. So that's your average usual production cell efficiency. And I say usual, I mean, that's actually one of the better ones. I think the exact figure is 15.4%. But let's not quibble about the 0.4. So ultimately, that's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. But because it's cheap to make you can plast them anywhere you've got a flat surface or an area that gets sunlight that changes things you know unlike hydro which requires huge amounts of land it needs to be high up in order for it to be efficient mm-hmm. okay and of course one of the other best parts of solar is that there's no further loss yeah it's just directly converted to DC away you go No mechanical conversion necessary. All right. Next thing to talk about is fuel cells. Now, I I think fuel cells are a very cool technology. But I have my doubts about a lot of aspects. So, all right. I want to just focus. There's all sorts of different fuel cells. I just want to focus on hydrogen fuel cells because they're the most commonly used, discussed, uh, prevalent. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the concept works like this. Anode and cathode. It's a fuel cell, kind of like a battery cell. Anode, cathode, right? Mm-hmm. The anode reacts with hydrogen 
and strips the electron from the proton because hydrogen is, you know, one, one H, right? So one proton, yeah. one electron. So the anode reacts with that and strips off your electron. The proton is capable of passing through the membrane, but the electron isn't. So as the proton passes out the other side, the electron takes, as it were, the long way around to catch up as it passes out the other side. And that creates an electrical current. That is really simplified, but that's the, the gist of it. At the cathode, that hydrogen then recombines, it combines with oxygen, and that creates water as a byproduct. Sounds super clean, right? Sounds like Sounds it. Sounds like it, doesn't it? I'm guessing you're going to tell me it's not. Well, <laughs> the answer is it depends. And I'll get to why in a minute. So the electron, as it's split, goes around. It creates about 0.7 volts potential difference in, uh, in, the, in a hydrogen fuel cell. So you stack a bunch mm -hmm. of those in series, you get bigger voltages and away you go, right? You got your DC, you go on happily enjoy your electricity, enjoy your, enjoy your electrons. Okay, so key points, needs oxygen to work, but that's okay. Internal combustion engines do too. That's not so bad. Yeah. They generate heat. Guess what? So is an internal combustion engine. No problem. Yeah. Fair enough. Now, for portable applications... They use a safer and lighter polymer membrane. But the problem with the polymer membranes, not as efficient. 50 to 60% conversion efficiency. Respectable, admittedly, but, you know, not, 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 not as good as hydro. The air, nothing's as good as hydro. Anyway, larger scale plants, however, ones that typically don't move, <laughs> they'll use molten carbonate or solid oxide membranes. And they can also then use the they can also harness the heat that's generated by the fuel cell, uh, and that, that then creates what they refer to as a combined cycle. So you're using the electrical energy plus the heat, the waste heat to generate Got it. independently through more traditional means, and essentially you get a combined cycle efficiency of about eighty five percent, and that sounds really good. However, they are expensive to manufacture. And most importantly, you need hydrogen as the fuel. So, how do you mass produce your hydrogen? Okay. Hydrogen is one of the most plentiful elements in the universe. Plenty of hydrogen. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's great. But mass producing hydrogen on Earth at the moment, it's actually done from something called steam reforming. And that steam reforming is from natural gas. Natural gas is, of course, a hydrocarbon that you get out yeah. of the ground, like oil, like coal. So you can't you can't discount the natural gas that you're using when you generate your hydrogen. That's right, because you're creating greenhouse gases as a byproduct of, you know, reforming <laughs> this, this doing steam reforming in the natural gas. You, you're creating greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases as a byproduct. Well, that's not really environmentally friendly, is it? But that's how the majority of hydrogen is mass produced right now today. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the way it has to be. That's just the way it is at the moment. That process takes a lot of energy. And I guess the other thing is they say, okay, well, let's do the clean way. And we're going to use electrolysis. Now, electrolysis is simple enough. You pass, a, you pass an electrical current into an anode and a cathode into water. And 
You will get hydrogen collecting around one and you'll get oxygen collecting around the other. You're splitting it by through electrolysis. But there's a problem with electrolysis. It requires electricity. Which you got to get from somewhere else. Exactly. And it has a conversion efficiency that is not perfect. So what you're essentially doing is you're taking electricity generated from some through some means to split hydrogen and oxygen. Once you've split it, that's not enough. That hydrogen has to be carried around. Now, you're not going to carry it around in a balloon and talk funny when you breathe in. <laughs> maybe, maybe you are. But, you know, you can't put that in a car and go any distance. It needs to be compressed yeah. into uh, either a, a highly compressed form of the gas or it needs to be compressed ideally down into a liquid, liquid hydrogen. Yeah. Just like we do with LNG, liquid natural gas, LNG. It's, it's kind of volatile in that state too. It's volatile it? in any state, but hydrogen okay. is nowhere near as reactive as people like to think. I mean, everyone thinks Hindenburg, it's actually not as, not as dangerous as you might think. But even so, there has that stigma. That doesn't help its cause. LNG is just as reactive anyway. In fact, in some respects, LNG is more reactive. So, anyway, the, the point is that you have to now compress your hydrogen and then you've got to ship it around. The, all of those processes take energy. Where's the energy uh -huh. coming from? Before you even get to generating electricity out of the fuel cell. And remember, energy can't be created. It can only be converted. So, in every step of the conversion, you lose energy. You, you lose energy in some form or another. So what's happening is hydrogen is not a method of, gener of, of, of creating energy from something that already exists. Like, you know, if you're burning a hydrocarbon, that energy was absorbed by the sun, by plants and the earth, you know, cooking away at it for thousands and thousands of years. That energy, that's, that's bottled up and you're burning it and that releases the energy that you then use to create work. You know, sunlight is energy from the sun right now and you're converting that into electrical energy. But all a fuel cell is doing is taking hydrogen that you've collected and if you're collecting it through a clean means like electrolysis, all you're doing really is you're not actually releasing energy at all. All you're doing is you're returning the hydrogen that you split from the water back to water again and you're converting yeah. it back again and that conversion, you're able to extract electricity from it. So in essence, the hydrogen is storing the energy. It's like a battery. So... Hence the term fuel cell. Exactly. So it's not like any of the other technologies. You know, it's just not. So it's kind of... I find this whole thing about everyone says, oh, the hydrogen economy, you know. And we're going to have hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and they're great. Well, you know, here's the thing you got to make the hydrogen somehow. Mm -hmm. So, what's the, the ideal plan? Maybe the ideal plan is you put hydropower every place you possibly can. You put solar panels in everywhere else and you do pumped hydro storage for your, you know, storing your, off, your, your peak energy so you can use it during the night. Hydropower runs 24-7 and everyone's all happy. That's your electricity, and then you use that to create hydrogen, use the energy from that to compress it, and then you transport it by truck to, you know, service stations 
where people can then fuel up their cars with hydrogen and then fuel cells in the vehicle turn the hydrogen into electricity, which then drives the electric motors, which then drives the vehicle. Or you could just put a bunch of batteries in your car and charge them up like a Tesla does and cut hydrogen out of the equation. Yeah. Which is simpler. So the thing is, I find the whole hydrogen economy idea to be somewhat flawed. I don't see it as being any better or any worse than using batteries. And in many ways, it's worse because ele electrons that are carried over power lines, like those Tesla rechargers, supercharger stations, right? They take solar power and they buffer it against the grid. You drive your, your, your Tesla up, your electric vehicle up, blow a bunch of charge in to the batteries, drive your car away again. All of that power has been either taken from the sunlight directly, which has no wires, or has come from wires that are already existing, going to power stations that already exist, or hydro plants that may exist. It's using existing infrastructure. But with hydrogen, there is no existing infrastructure. Some people... You don't have to build anything. Yeah, you've got, to, you've got to have... The, the, the technical safety requirements of liquid hydrogen storage are more strict than for LNG. You can't just use an LNG tank completely as it is. You have to modify it. In some cases, depending upon the standard, you may have to replace it completely to support liquid hydrogen. You know? So, and there's still yeah. plenty of petrol stations out there that don't have LNG. I mean, I, I, I know I can think of several at the top of my head. And LNG has been around for 25 years at least for, for cars locally where I live anyway. So where does that leave you? It leaves you with the fuel cell is cool. Yes, it is. Tick. It's efficient. Well, yeah, mostly. The portable version, perhaps not as much as people would like, you know, which is where it's going to be most likely used. Because let's face it, if you're going to have it as a baseload station, why would you use fuel cells? Doesn't make sense from a conversion efficiency point of view. I don't know. I know that Horace has talked about this on a SIM car. You know, maybe I should get him on one day to talk about it and have it out with him. But for the moment, at least, let's leave it there. So that's hydrogen. That's fuel cells. Don't have anything else to really say about that. So I'd like to just take a moment now to talk about our second sponsor for this episode, and that's lynda.com. Lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in the fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, audio, and lots and lots more. Way too many to list here. They have an enormous library of titles to choose from, with new courses added every day to make sure their library is both relevant and up-to-date. They work directly with experts from many different industries and software development companies to provide you with the timely training you need. Often, on the exact same day, the newest releases become available so that you know you've got the access to the latest information the moment you are most likely to need it. Now, these are nothing at all like the homemade video tutorials you might find on YouTube, and they might tell you a little snippet and it's not indexed it's buried somewhere deep inside uh, like a 30 minute tutorial on youtube or let's say 20 minute tutorial whatever it is yeah and you really just need to know that one little bit of information well lynda.com they make high quality easy to follow and importantly well indexed video tutorials with transcripts they're broken down into easily searchable sections now this bite-sized piece approach makes it really easy to stop and pick up where you left off whenever you need to. So you can learn at your own pace, in your own way, and in your own time. 
Now, whether you're a complete beginner with no knowledge at all about the subject, or you've been doing moderate to advanced, you're a moderate or advanced user and you're looking to brush up on the latest version of, of the software you're using, well, Lynda.com has courses that span that entire range of experience. You can learn on the go as well. Since Lynda.com has iPhone, iPad, and Android apps, they also support playlists. They provide certificates as evidence of course completion. If you're on LinkedIn, you can even publish those certificates directly to your profile. Yes, I have a LinkedIn profile. Now, a little known fact for me is that many, many years ago when I left Windows behind and switched to a Mac, I say left it behind, I still occasionally have to use it at work, but anyway, I got stuck into a lynda.com Tiger the Basics tutorial and then followed up with a Leopard new features and essential training the following year. They still make those for every new release of OS, of OS 10, But that was seven years ago that I did that. So this is not a new thing. They, they've been around, Lynda.com been around for a long time for good reason. Now, they helped me out a lot back then. Now, today, I've well, in the last few few weeks, I'm, I've been using Logic Pro X, uh, which is you know the, the new software I've been using to edit uh, this podcast with. And honestly, it's helped me a lot. The Essentials Training for Logic has seven hours and 20 minutes of video in it with a full transcript. It's broken down into sections I can eat so I can pick out and choose what bits that matter the most to podcasting. So honestly, it's been really, really good. So much good stuff in there that I just, I can't list it all. I'd go on for uh, forever. So anyway, what's it all worth? Well, for one low monthly price of $25, you get completely unlimited access with over 100,000 video tutorials in the lynda.com library. That's huge. But premium members with an annual plan can download courses to their iPhones, iPads, or Android devices and watch them offline. Premium plan members can also download project files and practice along with the instructor. Maybe you're getting into pages, numbers, and keynote because now they sync up nicely, finally, <laughs> between Yosemite and, uh, and iOS 8, mostly, <laughs> usually. Uh, so if you're getting into those, they've got tutorials for all of those uh, on each of the different platforms. You know, maybe you're just scratching the surface just, just by muck, messing around with them yourselves. Well, you know, lynda.com has training courses for all those apps to going way in depth with all the different features that are available. But if you're into Office 365, same deal for that. Word, Excel, PowerPoint, it's all in there with lots and lots more. So I've been talking with lynda.com for a while now and I've enjoyed their content on and off over the years and I'm happy to be able to provide pragmatic listeners with a special offer to access all their courses for free for seven days just to give them a shot. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to try lynda.com free for seven days. That's lynda.com slash pragmatic. Thank you once again to lynda.com for sponsoring Pragmatic. So that's the first half of the of the episode talking about the different efficiencies. Hopefully that's addressed the question that was put to uh, the topic, the suggestion rather. So the next part of this, um, I'd like to talk about energy efficiency in your home. And the problem with that is that First of all, once your home is built, it's built. So unless you're going to demolish your house and start again, there's only, there's a limitation as to how much you can do. And there's obviously also limitations based on the kind of house that it is. So if my house, for example, that I live in is a slab on ground brick veneer uh, with a corrugated iron roof. Now, that's going to be very different to a lot of North American listeners and a lot of European listeners. And they're going to have most likely tiled roofs they may live in uh, houses with a basement and an attic. They may live in houses that are single story, split level, above ground. You know, it's very unlikely that they're, we're all in all different kinds of houses. And some of the things that I'm going to talk about will apply and some of them won't. So if it doesn't apply to you, just bear with me. It applies to somebody. 
And if it does apply to you, well, I guess, yeah, see what you think. So I just want to focus predominantly on heating and cooling. A little bit about lighting, but let's just let's just do with heating and cooling because heating and cooling is a lot of the energy that we use on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Heating in the winter, cooling in the summer, if that was not obvious. So the value of U, as in the letter U, is often quoted. It's actually a measure of the amount of heat transferred through one square meter of material with a temperature difference of one degree Celsius. Sorry to go metric on you, but that's what it's, that's what it is. So you'll see me mentioning the U, the UW um, of a particular material. Essentially, that's the thermal transmissibility, thermal conductivity measure that we're going to use. So insulation... Let's talk about insulation in the ceiling. Now, if you have a tiled roof, it's a little bit more like a brick wall insulation, right? And the math is very similar to that. But if it's corrugated iron like mine, then it's absolutely vital that you have insulation in the ceiling. If you've got a tiled roof, it's not quite so critical. Still useful to have. Um, because the, the, the thing is that the uh, material itself acts as a thermal... Um, thermal buffer of sorts it uh the thermal mass okay it starts out cool in the morning sun comes up it gradually warms it up and then when the sun goes down it takes time hours even to dissipate that heat back into the environment so you'll find that in the early hours of the day brick house with um with a tiled roof is actually quite cool even though if you were to step outside it's usually you know five ten degrees warmer outside than it is inside the house. But once you get to about 9 or 10 in the morning, you know, in summer, that's all gone and it's now quite hot. And then of an evening, the sun goes down. It'll be a few hours, two or three hours after sunset before that heat dissipates again. So it retains heat, but it also provides a bit of buffer. So it adds hysteresis is technically the right way of saying it. Anyway, so... um, there's a great site uh, called Super Homes UK and it gives a good list of the different materials and their respective U-values for insulation. So I'm going to pluck out the ones um, for an example here. So a metal roof with no insulation has a UW of 0.9. Whereas a one inch, uh, the same roof, but with one inch thick, which is 25 millimeter fiberglass insulation, drops that back considerably to 0.26. To get down to 0.05, however, you need to go to 6 inches, which is 150 millimeters of fiberglass insulation. That's really quite thick. Mm-hmm. Now, if I, you know, being a little bit, okay, I'm in Australia, so I pluck some Australian numbers, but the average floor area of a house in Australia is 220 square meters. So I'm going to use that roughly as my roof area. It's close enough you know, for government work or even non-government work because it's not government work. Anyway, with a 15-degree temperature difference between the inside of the house and the outside of the house, with no insulation, we're looking at a 3-kilowatt heat loss. With one inch of fiberglass insulation, we'd drop down to under a kilowatt. It's only 850 watts of loss. With six inches of insulation, it's down to 165 watts of heat loss. So that's that's yeah. in, that's huge, absolutely enormous. 
And of course, that that goes both ways. So if you're trying to cool the house, the you know, the heat is coming in. You want to stop it from coming in. So that just gives you an idea of the impact that it has. The problem I've got though, I say that's fiberglass insulation, right? Well, fiberglass is just one kind. <laughs> there are so many different types and brands. It is not funny. Here's a list of five funnily named ones. Single-sided polyweave foil. Single-sided polyweave foil with R1.5 glass wall bats. Single-sided polyweave foil with 30mm anti-glare reflective EPS board. Bubble foam foil. Double-sided anti-glare foil. And of course, uh, actually, I, I might just stop there. There's a lot, okay? And obviously, different insulation will have a different um, transmissibility. So let's just, you know, we'll just run with those figures to say basic fiberglass, nothing fancy. Just to give you an idea anyway. All right, so insulation in the walls. Obviously, two kinds of walls, internal and external walls. So people think that brick, you know, mm -hmm. and concrete and rock block. Do you know what I mean when I say rock block? I think so, yeah. yeah. So rock block, for those that aren't sure what it means, is that they will take a mold and they will cast it in concrete. Usually, it's in the shape of a large rectangle and it's got two holes in it, two large square holes in it. And they will stack these uh, interlocked usually uh, with bricks and mortar and then they will fill them. They'll put re reinforcing bar, or sometimes referred to as Rio bar, in through the middle and they'll pour in concrete. Rebar. Yeah, rebar. That's also called rebar. We call them cinder blocks. There you go, cinder block. There you go. Fantastic. And then fill that up with concrete. And it makes a really super strong, thick wall, as opposed to brick, which you know is is not stabilized with concrete through the middle typically, with solid brick. Yeah. Okay. So you think that those are going to be the best for your thermal insulation, but you know it's the same problem with the roof tiles that, we, that I talked about just before. So they they act as a thermal mass. They add hysteresis to the heating and the cooling cycle. So you still want to have insulation on that because you want to decouple that thermal cycling of those bricks or the tiles or the roofing from the interior temperature of the house. So uh, it's still worth installing insulation between the brick and the internal wall cavity. Same kinds of numbers, uh, but the gains will be different, of course, because the sunlight is not on... The sunlight's on the roof all day long from when it comes up to when it goes down, pretty much. But with the walls, it depends on if they're northern, southern, eastern facing and the time of year mm -hmm. and the height of the house. So two-story versus single-story. There's there's many, many variables. The roof is the easy one to do the maths on. That's what I've done. If you want to do... You know, your mileage will vary. Uh, not not YMMV. Uh, it, it's YMWV. Yes. Because it will vary. It, it won't may vary. Anyway... Another part of walls are windows and not ones by Microsoft. These ones, uh, it's important. To <laughs> that was a bad joke. Anyway, uh, which is all I do. <clears throat> Maybe one day I'll come up with a good joke. Anyway, so double glazed windows. Everyone gets, well, hang on. I was going to everyone gets. In Australia, it's uncommon to have double glazed windows in residential houses, especially in Queensland, New South Wales, Western Australia. You go to the southern states like Victoria or down Tasmania, it's more common. But even then, central heating is not is not a given. Many of the houses down, down south do not have central heating. And double glazing is the sort of thing 
that people will put into a house that has uh, central heating because it saves so much on, on heating costs. So here's why. Let's just do some, some rough math. For an average house, 70 square meters, which is 750 square feet of glass area in the house. Now, mm-hmm. that may sound like a lot, but think about it. You've got some houses will have almost floor-to-ceiling windows broken up into two or four pieces. You'll have doors that have got glass inserts. You'll have sliding glass doors that are in all glass. You know, there's there's actually quite yeah. a lot of glass in houses. And why? Because we don't want to look at the inside of a wall. We want to see the pretty, well, we presume pretty uh, view outside. You know, if you're in a if you're in a location where you've got lots of grass and trees and you know, the dog running around outside tearing your air conditioning pipes to pieces or your bike seats or your whatever, you know, football, soccer ball. Anyway, um, yeah, dogs. Anyhow, <laughs> or if you're unlucky enough to live in a place where, you know, you've just got the, the view of an alleyway, well, maybe the alleyway is pretty too. Maybe it's got some nice pretty graffiti on it that you want to look at. Whatever. The point is that you've got a bunch of glass and you want to look out there. You don't want to just look at a concrete wall. If anyone's seen an episode of The Goodies where they, they came up with a perfect building that was solid concrete, yeah, <clears throat> not like that. So we don't want that. We want glass. But the downside is glass is terrible, absolutely terrible as an insulator. Um, so if we look at standard untinted 3 millimeter, which is an eighth of an inch thick glass with an aluminum frame or aluminum frame if you prefer to use the brand name, it has a UW value of 6.9. Now, remember the roof with without insulation was 0.9. This is 6.9. That's a big terrible. Difference. Okay, now with a 15 degrees, so we'll stick with that number of 15 degrees temperature difference, and that's degrees Celsius, which is a difference in Fahrenheit of 27 degrees Fahrenheit. Then that temperature difference, you know, over, uh, let's say it's overnight, yeah, then you're losing is uh, 7.2 kilowatts of heat just through the windows. Now, if you're trying to maintain a temperature inside that house, you need to top that up with heating. So that, that is heat energy lost, continuous loss. Really not good, huh? So, um, the best kind of windows in terms of like reducing heat loss do not have a metal frame. They have either a UPVC or, believe it or not, good old timber. Yeah. Double glazing. Same kind of glass is fine. Three millimeter thick, which is eighth of an inch. inch, But you want to have a nice, decent air gap between the two layers. Six millimeters is good. That's a quarter inch air gap. Glass with those sorts of frames, that drops it to less than half. It drops it down to 3.03, you know. So you only lose about three kilowatts through all the windows. Now that is a heck of a lot better. I mean, it's still terrible, <laughs> but it's a heck of a lot better. Now, you know, a lot of places that's actually quite expensive. So a lot of places will stick with the steel frame. You know, they've got they they won't have a six millimeter gap in them. They'll they'll be less than that. All sorts of reasons, structural reasons, cost reasons, blah, 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 blah. Point is, though, that that's the best you can get. And, of course, single glaze is the worst you can get. Well, actually, I suppose the worst you can get is no glass at all, just an open hole in the wall. In which case, I wonder what the transmissibility is of open air. 
Never mind that. Okay. That also was a joke that was even less funny. Anyway, if you really... <laughs> so, if you really, really, really don't want to lose heat out of the windows, I've got a great idea. Why don't you block them up with foam insulation? Just block them up. Yeah, you know, when you're not using them. There you yeah, go. Why not? Uh, the view won't be so great, but think of it this way. You're saving energy. Anyway, you know something that's a little bit funny? I think about that. It's actually not so ridiculous. At night time, if there's no one in the room and you don't care, you know, you could, if you had a control system on it, you could you could move a uh, an insulator into place of an evening and lock the place down mm-hmm. for an evening and that would save power on your heating. Pop to, pop to it, Vic. I got some some thick drapes that we close in the evening. Eh, that probably helps a little bit. And their their packaging said that it would. <laughs> the pack the packaging is the source of all truth. And... I, I I will leave it at that. Well, the other option I thought of is maybe one day super ultra extra efficient houses will have perfect walls that are perfectly insulated that are perfectly solid. And instead of having a, a hole in the wall, you'll have a video screen with a camera looking outside because, you know, the, the way that energy consumption is, is reducing, you know, maybe that'll work out to be more energy efficient till you lose power and then, you know, you can't see outside. You don't get any of that pesky sunlight during the day. Either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so angle of the house. Now, I know I said... It's kind of hard to shift your house once it's built. But then I thought about it. If your house is on stilts, it's actually possible for you to lift it and to move it if you wanted to. Mind you, you know, that's statistically not very common to have houses on stilts anymore. Uh, even in Australia, it's not very common. It's too expensive. Uh, but the idea anyway is if you are building a house and you are in a position to do this, uh, you know, if you've got a house on stilts and lots of money, I guess... You know, you want to keep the sunlight shining on the sides of the house with eaves or with, you know, less windows on them during the summer months and allow the sunlight into windows that are more readily uh, during the wintertime. Anyway, uh, I guess uh, the other idea is with angling the house is to angle windows and doors such that you get a natural breeze based on the, the locale that you live in. It's natural breeze patterns, prevailing wind directions. Uh, which I just realized was the name of a previous episode. But anyway, uh, in a completely different context. The, and that'll allow air to flow naturally through the house. Yeah. Now, that's all nice and well and good and lovely, but this, you, you just, I mean, let's be honest, you can't retrofit that. But I have to mention it for the sake of completeness. Now, here's another interesting one. Choice of flooring. Now, I originally dismissed this, but it turns out... Turns out. It's... Um, only really a big concern or improvement, rather, if you have an elevated floor or a cavity beneath the floor, like, you know, maybe a basement or maybe we're talking about... Crawl a, space. Yeah, crawl space, exactly. Or maybe we're talking about a multi-story building, you know, where, you know, where we're only heating or cooling one floor on that building and not the other, hence getting a temperature differential because the temperature differential is the issue that we're fighting against. If you're, if you're, if you're cooling everything equally... And there's a dividing wall, dividing floor, doesn't matter. If everything's all being cooled equally, there'll be no temperature difference, so it doesn't matter if it's insulated or not. You're only trying to insulate it from 
parts of the house that you are not air conditioning. You're not air conditioning the outside world, therefore there's a temperature differential between the inside and the outside. You try to control the inside, the outside is too hot, too cold. You're trying to control the inside, hence the insulation stops that. You know, if you've got one room in a house, you're trying to keep that one room cool, then the interior wall is fine. And, you know, insulate the interior walls. You want to trap that energy, that cool energy, or, or if you're heating one room and not the others. Like you may not heat the garage. That's quite common in colder climates. And you would insulate everything around the garage, but you wouldn't bother heating the garage. You know, so it's all about temperature differential. Now, my house is a concrete slab on ground, which is quick, cheap, and simple, but it's also prone to things like, well, termite intrusion, which isn't good, uh, stress cracking in the slab, you know, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? It's a civil engineering problem and I don't care. Anyway, the differences between lino, uh, timber veneer, hardwood, they're really not that great uh, in terms of their thermal conductivity. The, the, the ceramic tiles aren't really that good. They're actually a bit worse than that. It turns out that backed carpet, as in rubber back carpet, is the best. But no matter how you slice it, you need to lay a thermal insulation that allows some airflow so that it stops any wood wood rotting. You know, that's if you've got wood mm-hmm. on either side, which you know you're probably going to. Uh, but you know, it doesn't doesn't let drafts in from the outside because obviously that kills it. That kills the uh, the effect. Anyway, the problem is it's generally not the biggest bang for the buck. The walls, the ceiling, the windows, much easier to retrofit. So most people in houses don't bother. But if you're in high-density living, for example, maybe let's say you're in London with terraced housing, it's actually very common, but for reasons beyond just the thermal side of things, also for sound insulation. Because you know, yep. cause your, your unit might be on the third floor of a terrace and you might have you know people living beneath you or the other way around. And the people beneath you, I don't want to hear the people upstairs wandering around playing loud music or doing whatever they may or may not be doing. That's not suitable for children. The corkboard yeah. and mineral wool bats are the most common materials used for insulating the floor. Uh, the payback periods that I I saw quoted on one side I looked at, it is linked in the show notes. Uh, the three to five year payback period, they say, for insulating a suspended floor, um, but, only, but eight to 10 years, which is not as good for a solid floor. Now... Honestly, it, okay, so it makes sense to me that a suspended floor would be better because it, you know, it's going to be more effective because you've got more of an air gap and so on and so forth. But you know, the problem with this I have with this website is that there's a lot of conflicting information out there and they didn't show they're working. I would have loved to have gone through and confirmed that, honestly. I just decided not to do the math on that one and move on. But it's the last thing I'd try anyway because it's just the most you know difficult. Okay, now there's another one I want to throw in here before we wrap up on things you can do to the house in terms of insulation. And it's kind of, I guess it's robbing Peter to pay Paul a little bit. It's skylights. Now, you know what I mean when I say skylight? Big glass window on the roof? Damn right. Sometimes there's other versions of them called solar tubes. Same kind of thing, generally a little bit smaller. So the idea is that Let's say you've got a part of the house that you ordinarily would have lights on because it's just too dark during the middle of the day or during fringe hours of the day, far more likely, like early morning, late evening. Well, sorry, late afternoon, not quite evening. So uh, usually in the middle part of the house, I would, I would think you would have this problem. So what you can do to let more light in is install a skylight. 
and they'll save you on running light bulbs in that period on the electricity. Yeah. But there's two problems I have. First one is that a lot of people get a huge skylight and you can't shut it. So what if it's too bright in the middle of the day and you want to shut it? Well, a lot of people get skylights. You can't reach them to shut or they just aren't designed with a shutting mechanism Uh, and then it gets too damn hot. Yeah, it's a, it's a big. It brings a lot of heat in during the summer, and it's a big heat leak in the that's winter. That's right, and that's exactly what I want to explore. So skylights also admit heat, and they lose heat just like a window. So it's a trade-off, and I love those. <laughs> or I'll talking about them. So does the electricity cost saving of adding more light to that room outweigh the additional heating or cooling costs? So I let's run some numbers. 14-inch solar tube that I found on a website has a UW of 0.43 with a cross-sectional area of 154 square inches, which is 0.1 of a square meter. So, you know, not huge, but still a reasonable size for a solar tube. And that same temperature differential of 15 degrees only results in 0.7 of a watt because it's so small. Yeah. Okay. But it produces 6,500 lumens. That's at maximum. But what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, that's we're not in the middle of the day. We're going to assume about half that because we're going to be operating this. Our, our, our test case is the fringe, fringe times of day when there's less sunlight, which is when it's going to be most useful. Because otherwise, yeah. otherwise, you know, it's just, it's on. That's great. But, you know, we would have otherwise been using the light, not during the daytime, but only on the fringe hours. So, we'll halve that number to about 3,000 lumens. Now, that works out to, if we're talking about an incandescent light bulb, about 250 watts worth of electricity. Now, no one uses incandescents anymore because incandescents suck. So, we've switched to an LED, just like a good boy. And it's only consuming 25 watts from a good LED for that amount of light intensity. Mm-hmm. Which, mind you, as LED bulbs goes, is actually quite bright. Uh, you know, for example, my LifeX bulb, uh, it's 18 watts, and that's super bright at maximum. Now, 25 watts is even more. Anyway, so all of these numbers that I'm just running now, all that assumes that there's no thermal loss in the tubing. Um, there's no... The roof cavity is uh, has been well insulated from the solar tube itself such that you don't get any heat losses there. But even if we do assume we lose, say, say, 10 watts of heat to the roof space, we are still well ahead of that 25 watts for lighting that room. Way ahead. 0.7 watts, hard to beat that. So ultimately, yes, it does make sense, which is one of the reasons why you should consider them. But of course, there's other little downsides. You're going to make sure they're well sealed on both sides to prevent them leaking because that's not fun. You've voluntarily punched a hole in your otherwise not leaking roof. Well, I mean, I say not leaking roof. I presume your roof is not already leaking when you install the uh, the solar tube or skylight. But anyway. All right. So there you go. Hopefully that's answered that question for anyone that had it. Now, a lot of this talk about heat loss and, you know, and so on with insulation, it can all be rendered useless if you leave every single window and door open. Then the air flowing through the house will predominantly set the temperature. So it's more about in the wintertime when things are cold and everything's all shut up and you're heating the house, 
Yeah, or in the summertime when it's so hot, you're trying to keep the heat out. You've got all the windows closed and you know, you're trying to keep the air conditioning in. You know, anyway. But ultimately, you're far better stopping the energy loss at the point of use rather than trying to add more heating or cooling capacity at the input. So let's just say um, I have no insulation in my roof, none of my walls. I've got, you know, no none anywhere. And, I'm, and my entire... Uh, the entire room's covered in skylights. <laughs> it's one big skylight. You know, so you got this huge heat loss. Well, you know, you can cool that down. It's just going to take a 10 kilowatt, in, you know, inverter air conditioner. Mm -hmm. But that's not very efficient. So what you want to do is you want to add insulation, add your double glazing, you know, add your suspended floor with, your, with insulation in it. If you do all those things, you might be able to get away with a 5 kilowatt or 4 or 3 kilowatt cooling unit. And that's where you're saving your energy. So you're far better off doing the insulation because that will cost you less and that will save you money in the long term. And if I had to prioritize them I'd, in terms of cost and ease, I would start with ceiling insulation first as your biggest bang for buck, then double glazing on the windows or insulated frames yeah. or both, hopefully. Wall insulation, I would suggest, would be next. And then floor insulation would be last. Irrespective of how you slice it, of, uh, and I, I've said that before, I'll say it again, is that it depends on the house that you've got. Some houses will have some, you know, like for example, my house, we, we have no insulation in our wall cavities, but we do in the roof. You know, and that was a conscious decision that we made. But then we have one wall-mounted air conditioner in the whole house. We don't have central air conditioning. We don't have central heating. So, you know, in many respects, it doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Anyway, all right, last little bit I'm just going to sprinkle on and then we're going to wrap it up and that is I want to talk a little bit about appliances. So this is all about energy efficiency. This is all about thinking about being greener and things that you can do to save energy. Well, here's the thing. There's a bunch of little, little, real silly things and I'm just going to rattle them off one by one. Here we go. When you buy an appliance, think about the following things. If it's going to be running continuously or for long periods of time or regularly enough, you know, that it's on it's on regularly, then pick an appliance whose power is as small as possible for the task you need it to do. Don't get hung up on other features. Just get one that doesn't consume a lot of power. And a lot of these things have got energy star ratings or EPA ratings and, and these ratings are designed to help you understand and some of them even have the actual kilowatt hour uh, rating on written on the front of them. Mm -hmm. If you're getting a TV, do you really need a ridiculously huge huge TV set? You probably don't. You know, do you really need it? Because that's going to cost you a lot of electricity to run a big TV. You know, every few inches of that TV that you get, it's bigger. It's more and more electricity. It's going to cost to drive it. Do you really need it? Do you really need ducted air conditioning? You know, if you've got 10 kilowatts of cooling load, you know, you can forget ever disconnecting from the power grid, you know, no solar, you know, you have to have an enormous solar array and battery packs if you want to go off the grid at some point and be, even be energy neutral, you know, good luck with that. So, do you really need ducted air conditioning or fans good enough? Speaking of fans, fans are far more efficient than air conditioning anyway, and they take advantage of evaporative cooling that our body uses. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. through forced air can forced air evaporative cooling. 
It works fine. Well, it works relatively well until you get stupidly hot or it's ridiculously high humidity. That's that's the problem here where I live is the humidity. Mm, exactly. Get a frost-free freezer. And I say that not because I hate defrosting them and the ice builds up on the coils. No. When ice builds up on the coils, it kills the efficiency. It makes it work harder because ice, as it forms, becomes an insulator, which then means that the cooling action of the gas inside the freezer is actually reduced because all it's doing is it's keeping the ice cold rather than the contents of the freezer cold. Yeah. So you've got to de-ice those things regularly. Otherwise, you know, you will have a much reduced efficiency. Next one. And if you get frost-free, you never, never have to worry about it. I guess you can get a freezer that's not frost-free so long as you defrost it regularly. Which, of course, no one does. They, they're like, oh, does the door shut? Nope, the ice is in the way. Right, time to defrost it. By which time it's been running inefficiently for months. All right, when you're getting a light bulb, get the longest lasting LED light bulbs you can get and think about the lighting level you actually need for the whatever the minimum activity is in that room. You don't need an mm -hmm. 80 watts worth of incandescent light in your room. You just don't. If you're, if you're working in a study, different story. And besides which, even if you are, get an LED desk lamp. You know, lower power, focused you can you can focus in on the keyboard the on on if you're writing on a book whatever you know far more efficient than getting a high powered led bulb in the ceiling so be realistic about how much you actually need don't leave the fridge or freezer door open for too long okay that's an obvious one and if you're going to heat or air condition you know a room at a time close the door don't leave it open is that obvious i think yeah. it's obvious isn't it surely to most people, I think. Because, I mean, I've walked into these houses. You know how open plan was a thing there for a while? It's like, here, open plan. You're not confined. It's awesome. Or something. I don't know what the... I don't get the attraction of open open plan houses, but anyway. So, uh, and then I'll have an air conditioner up on one wall, this enormous area. And you're looking at the air conditioner and I'm doing the math in my head. As you do, you, know, you walk into a building and the first thing I think is, oh, I don't know how many BTUs there are. That's British thermal units. <laughs> <sighs> Anyway, all right, good, lovely. Did you have any you wanted to add to that list? Because that's my list. No, I think you covered everything I would have thought of. Oh, okay. So we're doing that again. <sighs> Sorry. Yeah, well, you should... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You're thorough, John. What can yeah, I say? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that's, one, that's one potential explanation, I guess. But I guess we might wrap it up there now. So if you want to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi and check out my writing at techdistortion.com. If you'd like to get in touch with Vic, he can be reached on Twitter at VicHudson1. If you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. That's where you'll also find the show notes of this episode under Podcasts Pragmatic. If there are topics you would like me to cover, you can suggest and vote on them at techdistortion.com slash topics. Once you sign up for a free account at techdistortion.com, you can follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other related stuff like when we're broadcasting live, if you want to join in, and we hope you do. Uh, a final thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Uh, firstly, Igloo, an intranet you'll actually like, built with easy-to-use apps like file sharing, blogs, calendars, task management, and more. Make sure you visit the URL, igloosoftware, or one word, .com slash pragmatic to get started. It's free to use for up to 10 people, no credit card required, 
just sign up and start playing today. And also, lynda.com for sponsoring Pragmatic. If there's anything you'd like to learn about and you're looking for an easy and affordable way to learn, then lynda.com can help you out. Instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts in their fields of business, software, web development, graphic design, and lots and lots more. Visit lynda.com slash pragmatic to get a free seven-day trial. If you've ever wanted to learn something new, what are you waiting for? Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. And thank you very much again, Vic. No problem. No problem.